Amen, amen. You can be finding your way to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. We are in chapter 1, verse 26 through 31 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. So let me just kind of remind you where Paul was uh, the last time that we journeyed through this. Of course, we were in the Gospel of John last week for our Lord's Supper service. And so it's been a couple of weeks. So Paul enters into this section of 18 through 25, and he addresses the subject of wisdom. And one of the things we find when we get into this is Paul kind of establishes that there are two groups within the community. And the groups in the community take their designation for how they respond to the word, kind of what they consider it to be. So you have this group on the one side, he says that to them, the cross is folly. And so he says, universally, he says, this group, you could say they are perishing. And then he has this other group. He says, when the word of God comes to them, they are being saved. And for them, he says, it is the power of God. So it seems that depending upon how somebody apprises, how they evaluate, how they kind of stratify its worth of the word of God, they're going to be in one place or another. So if you come to it and you say, I believe, I receive it, I have faith in Jesus, to you, it is life-saving. But if you look at it and you say, look, I just don't believe it. I'm just not sure this is all that valuable. It's not for me. Maybe it's for somebody else. For you, it has no positive effect in you. Your situation does not change. And Paul would say that you continue on in this vein. You are perishing. So he goes through that deal and he begins to kind of meet that out. Well, what we find is that in verses 26 through 31, he moves not just from you're in this camp or you're in that camp, but he moves and he solidly begins to describe all those who look at the word of God, the power, and they say it is the power of God, and for all those who are being saved. In essence, he's addressing Christians. But one of the things you'll find that with, happens in most churches, it was happening in the church in Corinth, it happens within our church and other churches you might visit, is that we find that people tend to end up in kind of one of two ditches. And so ditch number one is to look at themselves and based upon the testimony they hear from their spouse or from their friends or from their colleagues or just kind of from people in culture, they feel low. They feel valueless. They feel as if they have no worth. They're not very smart. They're not very eloquent. They don't have much ability to affect change on a mass scale. And so they feel small and insignificant. And so that's certainly one ditch we find a lot of people end up on. And so the other side, you come over here, and so you don't have that same problem. In fact, your problem is this preoccupation with self-worth. And you find in yourself significant worth and significant value. In fact, you're so significant and your value is so high that everybody around you pales in comparison. You might say that they are uh, discardable. They're not valuable. And so we find that where one person really struggles to find their identity, this person has an overflowing amount of identity, and they are puffed up in pride. And Paul does this amazing thing. He takes those that are in the valley of shame and those that are on the mountain of pride and arrogance, and he brings them both to the plane of their existence in Christianity, and he calls them both to boast in Jesus. Look at how he begins in verse 26. Paul comes to them and he says, consider your calling brothers. Man, this is great thought that we are brothers with Christ. We are brothers with Christ. We are brothers with Paul And this idea where he steps in and he's asking us to evaluate, to consider what it is for you and I to be Christians. 
What does it look like for us to be Christians? What does it look like for us to be faithful to God in the midst of this? What things has God brought to bear on your life to get you to the place where you are ready to proclaim his riches, where you're ready to submit yourself to him? And what is he doing in your life today? And where is he leading you to go in the future? This weighty idea of considering our calling. Our Christian faith isn't something where we just kind of blindly live the existence of our lives, but God is actively doing something in you and calling you towards something. Now, he begins to describe them in terms that, that uh, we probably wouldn't find too cheery. We wouldn't find too uh, appropriate if somebody were to describe us this way. But just notice, this is for effect and this is for their own good. So Paul apprises this community and he says of them, not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. So he begins to kind of assault them at the level of their identity, kind of who they saw themselves in community. And so the way Paul describes this is effectively, you could walk in to uh, this first church in Corinth and, and you could step in the room and look around and be like, I don't see very many in here who I would say were wise. Now, giving us the impression that, that certainly, of course, there's the possibility that some in the room were wise, but not very many, and certainly not according to the world's standards. Now, maybe you sit here today and you say, man, I'm quite learned. I have an undergraduate degree. I have a master's degree. I have a PhD. I'm a, I'm a medical doctor. Or I'm a professional in my field, and I am excellent in all things. And that's how you begin to kind of build and crystallize your identity. So if somebody were to step into this room and to look at you and, and call you unwise, that would be this prime insult. Well, what it, Paul is calling us to do is to find our identity, not in how the world would categorize us, but to find our identity in Christ. And this is why he says, not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. So he steps into this room and he says, look, we don't have just a whole lot of sharp people in here as far as the world's concerned. Nobody in here is overly impressed with your IQ. Nobody in here is overly impressed with what you know and with what you're able to do with it. He said, but look, if somebody were to step into the room and say, where are the power players in the community? They wouldn't search them out in, in Corinth's church. They wouldn't say, oh, this, the church is this natural place where the power players in any community gravitate. No. One of the most significant problems that most churches find themselves in is, is giving people of note in a community unchecked power in a congregation. And it's ruinous because they end up operating within the church the same ways that they operate out in the world. And the church does not have the same pecking order. It does not have the same provisions. It does not have the same mandates that we see out in the world. And so just because you're an executive at L3 or in whatever industry you find yourselves in does not equate to a high standing within the church. In fact, we see this inverse order. He says, not many of you are powerful. They weren't able to step into their city halls and say, fix my road. They weren't able to step in and say, lower my taxes. They weren't able to make things happen. Then he says, look, not many of you are noble birth. Now he's talking about their mama. And he says, hey, look, some of you have a questionable background when it comes to your family. Now in Corinth, we know that a lot of the people in their community were formerly slaves. And so your mom and your dad were on somebody and, and that's great that you're a freedman. That's great that you're a freed woman. But you have to understand that, that your family line, your family tree, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't affect the pecking order. It's not establishing how things work and operate within the church. Not many of you are of noble birth. 
He's not trying to besmirch their name. He's just letting them know that as people look in there, they're not saying, oh, can you believe it? So-and-so goes to that church. I should go there because there are people of note and that are noteworthy. I had a friend of mine that was living out in California for a number of years, and he said when he would go to Sunday school, and so it was really interesting, when it came time for prayer requests, he said, you know, this would only happen in a society, in a community where everybody's a struggling actor and just an amazing barista. But he said, it would come time for prayer requests, and they would say, hey, look, uh, at 2.33 on Channel 5, you're going to see me for 30 seconds. I'm the guy in the background. I think this may be my big break. I think, you know, if you just kind of look there, and if, if you'd write the news station and just tell them that you really liked it, and I just, I, I see myself as that, and so it's just this room full of people that all wanted to aspire to something, and he had finally made it, my friend had. He had finally made it. He's traveling with a band that's no longer in existence, but for a brief time, he was marginally famous for at least 15 or 20 people. And so everybody's kind of talking about all these things and, and of note and, and comes time for prayer requests and he doesn't pray for anything. And his buddy knocks him and says, why didn't you tell people that you're playing on Tonight Show? And somebody heard them say, hey, you're playing on Tonight Show. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm just not telling a lot of people better. Like, Are you kidding me? And suddenly he's got all of these friends and all of these people want to be around him. Why? Because they think his soon coming notoriety, which lasted for five or six months, would have some positive effect on them. But we see the same thing happen in church today. We see a famous person make a veiled profession of faith and we line up to have them speak at every conference that we could ever imagine. Why? Because we, some, we somehow think that having more popular people advocate for Christianity will help its palatability. It'll help make it more approachable. It'll help make it more reasonable. But what we find is that Paul steps into this room. He says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are powerful, and, and many of you have questionable backgrounds. This is who we are. In the faith and the providence of God, this is what he has called us to. And I would tell you that within the economy of God, this is what he's always been about doing. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is recounting through Moses why he came to call the Israelites. And look at what he says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 7. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God is exclusive in his love and devotion for these people. He has chosen them or he has overlooked others. Look at the why. It was not because you are more in number than any of the people, the, uh, uh, any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In essence, you weren't more powerful. People didn't look at you and say, well, this is an obvious choice. He chose Israel because they're an up and coming nation. He says, in fact, for you are the fewest of all people. Our God makes these, these, these paradoxically seeming choices and choosing the insignificant so that he might be praised and adored. Look what he does in verses 27 and 28. He really begins to move and apply this to the particular. Verse 27, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is foolish in the world. Back in chapter 1 and verse 23, we find out that they preach Christ crucified. And what is Christ crucified? It is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it is complete and utter foolishness and folly to the Gentile. So this idea that God chooses what is foolish in the world, in essence, God chooses those things when the world looks at, they say, this is just stupid. This is just complete and utter rubbish. This has no worth and no merit. And that's us. And that's you and that's me. God chose you. 
He didn't choose you because of some innate ability that was hidden inside of you. And when he chipped up all the rough edges, that people would come to him in mass because you are good, great, and wonderful, and the world just needs to see it. He didn't choose you because you were getting it done in the secular sphere. And he said, oh, if I could just bring Steve over. And everybody saw Steve. They'd want to be Christians because he's so amazing. God didn't choose you because you were beautiful and you would attract all of these people to himself through you. God chooses the foolish things of this world. He chose you and I. We should be blessed and encouraged that he would call us fools for his sake. One of the things we see in the book of Acts is that Peter and John are out and they are doing ministry in Acts chapter 3 and they walk by and this lame beggar is healed. And Peter and, Peter and John end up in some teaching. And in verse 5 it says, On the next day the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were of the high priest's family. And when they had sent them down in the midst, they inquired, By what power or upon whose name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and peoples of the elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. They thought they were foolish. But they wanted to know how they were doing these things. He continues, he says, This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the very foundation of their faith. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now look at the response of the elders and the chief priests. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and of John, look what it says, and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. It's this amazing thing. Jesus is traveling around and he's gathering together men that would be a part of this, this beginning of Christianity and the 11 of which would expand Christianity of which you and I are recipients. He didn't go into to the banking institutions. He didn't go in to the uh, schools of philosophy and say, who's your brightest? Like, who's your up and coming? He chose illiterate fishermen. He chose illiterate fishermen and said, come and follow me and be fishers of men. And he gave them this commission to reach the world with the gospel. And the world looks at that and says, that is complete and other foolishness. But why has God ordered it thus? The text tells us it is to shame the wise. So that when the high priest looked there and they see, they see John and they see Peter and they say, oh my goodness, how are these guys doing this? They've not studied. They've not slaved away. They've not poured over the text. They are uneducated men in essence saying they're unworthy and they shouldn't be validated in this way. They were being shamed in the providence of our God that he would choose the foolish things among us to shame the wise, to bring the wisdom of the wisest to nothing. What he says next, he says, God chose the weak in the world. One of the amazing things you read through the New Testament, repeatedly you'll find that Jesus emphasizes and spend times, spends time among those who a first century audience in society gave no time and no worth and, and no assignment of value. Women and children. 
first century, women had no value. Children had no value. They were to be discarded and used however you saw fit. Jesus repeatedly entreated and said, let the children come. In fact, you can't come to me unless you come to me as one of them, unencumbered, recognizing no perception of self-worth and value outside of graciously sitting at the foot of the master. Women who loved and adored Jesus would take perfume and wipe his feet with their hair, who were waiting at the tomb for Jesus. Jesus constantly evaluated them. He chose people who could not make it rain, so to speak, in their community, and he poured himself into them to shame the strong. Think about one of the people who's had the most significant impact among disabled individuals across the world. Johnny Erickson Tata had an opportunity to hear her speak uh, a month or so ago in D.C. She's quadriplegic. She travels the world, and they raise money to give wheelchairs to children. She was a part of seeing that the Americans with Disabilities Act come to fruition. And she sits in front of us, and she has pages there, and is taking everything she possibly has in her to get the pages to turn. So our culture and our community looks at that, and they say, this is a person who can contribute nothing person who adds no worth, but a person that God would say, who is weak in the eyes of the world, but he's purposing and he's ordaining and he's designing that they would shame the strong. God chooses what's weak in the world to shame the strong. Look at verse 28. There's a lot packed in here. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not on the pecking order of the society, if you were to look at the Jews and ask them who they despise, they would say the Romans. And say, well, who else do you despise in that group? And they say the tax collectors. They say, of the tax collectors, who do you think is most vile? And they would say, a Jew that would become a tax collector. Hello, Matthew. One of Jesus' disciples is this guy who is basically a turncoat to his people, who fleeced his people and was a servant to Rome. And what did God do? He chose him to communicate the gospel. Low and despised, the world looks at them and says they are worthless. And this amazing thing, he says, even things that are not. Now, he's not talking about fictitious things. He's not talking about things that only exist in imagination. He's effectively saying, when you walk by, there are people that you don't even see, that you give no attention to. Maybe it's a homeless person. Maybe it's a drug addict. For a time in, in, in our country and in our culture, there were people of color that we look and say they don't value, they're, they're, they're nothing, they're less than human. And there are people invariably within our lives that we assign no worth or no value to. And our culture certainly does. From the elderly to the unborn, our culture would look at them and say they are nothing and they are less than nothing. They don't exist. They have no autonomy, no purpose. Amazing thing that in the providence of God, he chose such as those. He chose us to do what? To bring to nothing the things that are. In the economy of God, he's completely upending our culture in its value set, saying that our culture values these things over here, but they are nothing and valueless as God sees it and as God ordains it. 
This is what our great God is doing. He is bringing to nothing the things that are. Why is he doing this? Does God just really enjoy having a bunch of misfits and cast-offs to gather around him? Is God this God who sits in heaven and says, man, I, I, like, I want the people who really struggle to make friends, the people who are always pick last at kickball. Those are my kind of people, right? Those are my kind of people. Does he just always want a losing team? Does he always just want an awkward group for the type of people that if you get together at a dinner party, they're like, everybody's like. Right? <laughs> like I've been that guy. It's awkward. It's not what he's doing. That's not what he's communicating. But if God is, is solely dependent upon the high and mighty, if he's solely dependent upon the strong, the wise, and the powerful to accomplish his ends, he's not revealing himself to be God. So he confounds the wise. He, he shames the strong. He brings to nothing the things that are. Why? We get into verse 29. It says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God does all these things so that we wouldn't stand before him, arrive in heaven before him, and say, you're welcome, I'm here. It's so that we would stand in heaven with this right uh, appropriation of kind of who we are, that he has used us even though we're foolish, that he has used us even though we're weak, that he has used us even though the people in our society and our spouses and our friends consider that we are nothing and that our value system and our belief set is stupid and foolish. So that we stand before him, we give him all honor, we give him all glory, because he has accomplished the impossible through the improbable. He's accomplished the amazing through the unlikely. He does this so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now look at verse 30. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. He takes you, you prideful, arrogant jerk, and he takes you, you person who are caught up in the valley of shame and disappointment, and he makes you one in him. There's nothing to be ashamed about, and there's nothing to be overly prideful about. So he takes one, and you're on this kind of height of arrogance and pride, and you're so excited about who you are and what you've done over the course of your life, and you think everybody needs to know it, and we all are being done a favor by your presence in our lives, and you're, you're deigning to tolerate our foolishness. He takes you, you arrogant jerk, and he brings you low. And he takes you who are struggling with shame and doubt. Your spouse has beat you up. Your kids have beat you up. They said faith is untenable. These things make no sense. You're an idiot and a moron for believing these things. Why wouldn't you walk away? This is a waste of time. He raises you up. You are in Christ Jesus. You have eternal worth and value in spite of your pride, in spite of your shame. You are in Christ Jesus. We are found in him. God has placed us in him. We have fellowship and forgiveness in him. Now look at who he says Jesus is. He says, Jesus became to us the wisdom from God. Now up until this point, Paul has only spoken ill of wisdom and we recognize here he's turning it on us, and we recognize that what he's talking about isn't worldly wisdom, kind of knowing facts and being able to reproduce them, but what he's talking about is salvation. 
This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the wisdom, the true wisdom of God, Christ crucified, and this is what we become. We take on his righteousness, we take on his sanctification, and we take on his redemption. That in Christ we are righteous. That in the economy of God, as God looks at you, as you are in Christ, this is what he does. He looks at you and says, you are innocent. Of the sins you have committed in the past, of the ones you are committing today, and the sins you will commit in the future. He looks at you through Christ because you are in him. You are sealed and saved by his blood, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he says, you are innocent. He looks at you. And he says, you are holy. It's not that you just barely made it into the gates of heaven. He looks at you and he says, you're innocent. And then he looks at you and he says, all the goodness and all the worth and all the value in Christ and all this holiness rests upon you because you are found in him. And then he looks at you and he says, do you not understand? You're not just innocent. You're not just holy, but you are free. We live lives entrapped and enslaved to who we once were, to who our culture and community says we are. They say we are not wise. They say we are not strong. They say we are nothing. But in him, we are innocent. In him, we are holy. And in him, we are free. And so he ends this way. He says, so as the text says, so it is, as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord because God takes the prideful and he takes the one dwelling in shame and he brings them into Christ and he makes them innocent, he makes them holy, and he makes them free. And he bids everyone to come and to receive these gifts. If you sit here today, you don't believe. You want to believe, but you just look at it and you say, man, I just, I cannot receive these things. These things make no sense to me. I get why the Gentiles would look at this and say, this is foolishness and folly. The starting point of coming to faith in Christ. In some sense, is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, where he says, the poor in spirit have possession of the kingdom of God have to be a fool and be made foolish in the eyes of the world to receive the true wisdom of God, salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. We have this great message to convey, right? We have spouses, we have friends, we have co-workers, we have siblings who look at what we believe and say we are fools for the king. Can I tell you today, this is not an opportunity to be ashamed or embarrassed. This is an opportunity to boast in him that he has seen fit to call you and to call me to be fools for his sake so that our boasting might not be done in our pride and our ability, but only ever in him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. I am so just blown away that you would look at us and say that we are innocent, that we are holy, and that we are set free by the blood of your Son. 
So God, I pray that you would help that reality to be true for us each day in our minds. That as we suffer the persecution from those around us, as we encounter significant difficulty, that we would not be overcome, but we would be taken up in our new identity, always being found in Christ. You are good to us in Jesus. You are loving to us in Jesus. And you are forgiving to us in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.